This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The two books, I actually had some more intimidating titles, uh, and you'll notice in my subtitle, I'm trying to alleviate the weight of this. I call it that a happy study of the coming judgment. Even if I didn't, I was thinking, they're probably not going to believe that. Uh, But I threw the word happy in there because if it's just a study of the coming judgment, some of you are like, you know, I think I need to use the restroom. Uh, So I put in happy to sort of get you to stay around a little longer. I think you're going to love this. This is such a precious truth in my life and in my understanding. It, It forces worship. You can't help. But cherish Jesus all the more when you meditate, I know, it sounds strange, upon judgment. So Paul makes a statement to the church at Corinth, and I trimmed it, even though this is exactly what it says grammatically. I'm trying to make a point here. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And I would say, I'm not exactly sure that most of us know the terror of the Lord. And so as a result, you can understand why we don't persuade men. You see, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. If you really know the terror of the Lord, what would you be doing? I'd be persuading men. Now, some of us have this idea that God sort of improved himself in the New Covenant. It's like he's sort of a harsh guy judging people in the Old Testament. And then when we finally get to the New Testament, Jesus sort of comes along and says, Hey, Father, you got it. You've just been a little extreme. So I'm going to sort of dial it down a little. And I'm going to be a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of patience. He's always been a God of love, mercy, and patience. And he's always been a God of justice and judgment. And Jesus didn't change God. He revealed him. And so as a result, what we see in Jesus is an access that is made to that which has been always available. Well, I should say it's always been there in heaven, but it wasn't available. We were cut off to it, and that is the grace of God. You see, Jesus came to make a way for us to receive that grand mercy. The importance of preaching on judgment Judgment and salvation are the same coin. It has two sides. And if you don't understand judgment, well, then salvation really doesn't make a lot of sense, to be honest with you. What are you saved from? So why, how does the message of salvation make any sense to anyone? Oh, you need to be saved. From what? You see, salvation makes sense in light of a context of something. And that's judgment. To the degree that we dial down judgments, and we're saying, oh, you know, there's a little too much of this judgment thing. We turn it down. You know what happens? We unwittingly, uh, accidentally, because I'm not saying we do it on purpose, but we unwittingly dial down salvation. The beauty of salvation, the glory, so great a salvation is dialed down when you don't know the terror of the Lord. So we preach judgment and we lift it to its proper volume, not beyond its proper volume. There's no, I believe me, I don't want greater volume for judgment than is necessary. But to the proper volume, you know what that does? It causes so, the song of salvation to lift in our souls. It leads us to cherish the work of the cross at a whole other level. Judgment. Quite a definition here. You see, when you think of judgment, you think of a courtroom. 
And you think of the gavel, and you know the judge, yeah, you got one week of community service, bud. And so he hands down a sentence, a judgment that is that fits the crime. And so as a result, this guy got a week of community service. He was judged, if you want to say it that way. Okay. However, judgment in Scripture is a little beyond that. You see, that's a punishment, but the judgment in Scripture that we are referring to is a remarkable punishment. It is beyond what even most of us as humans can fathom. It takes our breath away when we actually stare at it. It's like, ooh! It shocks us. It is beyond, it's remarkable. You see, when we think of what most of us consider sin lighter than God does, and so when we see the punishment in the Bible, don't you feel like we need to sort of dial it down a little? It's like, God, <laughs> I, I think you're overstating this. I, I think you're overreacting. Uh, he's not. And that's the point here. Judgment is a remarkable punishment. An extraordinary calamity inflicted by God on sinners. I know. We're already feeling a little uncomfortable for the nature of God. Hey, Eric, stand up for God. Don't cast him in that light. We're concerned that the world is going to see God as the big meanie. No, the devil's the big meanie. God is the one who loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, he's saving us from something. You see, he will bring judgment on sin. And if we want to identify with sin, if we want to cast in our lot with sin, he doesn't want us to die. But that's what will happen. For the father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the son. Now, Romans 8, 1, we are therefore now, uh, there there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, So I thought we weren't under condemnation. Condemnation is the penalty, the weight of the law upon us. But if we're in Christ, there is no condemnation. And so when you think of Jesus, you think of the one who gives reprieve from condemnation. He is. But he's also the one who brings it. This is a weird thought. But the one who is ultimately going to judge the quick and the dead, the one in the end who is going to sit on the great white throne and bring down the sentence of judgment is the very one that is our Savior. At first that sounds odd, but you need to recognize in that is the greatest hope. Because the one that will judge you is the very one who has gone out of his way and introduced himself to you and says, I want to rescue you. It's not like there's this separate judge out there and Jesus is like, yeah, I'm going to try and stand for you, but I mean, this guy's a a, a tough judge. Jesus is the judge. And so as a result, he's the one that has come to us and said, come on, hide in me. And you see, in that judgment day, though we must all stand before that judgment seat, you have to choose, do you want to be on the opposite side of Jesus or do you want to be in Christ because there's a very big difference in how you approach it introducing daddy Uh, that's me Uh, daddy let me read the subtitle and you'll you'll understand the great dread and delight of the looty kiddos daddy means business see daddy is like the law enforcement in the looty home okay if daddy's not there kids can run wild Okay, so when daddy comes in, daddy, you know, is going to make this home ship shape. And so daddy has a, a certain voice that he whips out that 
means business. And so I could use the name of one of my kids like, hey, buddy, what did I ask you to do? It's a daddy voice, okay? It's serious. It has a sternness to the tone, which is supposed to strike the fear of daddy uh, in the kids. Now, what's interesting is daddy is potentially the greatest threat, if you want to say it, of harm in the Ludi home. Daddy has strength. Daddy is what scripture would look at as the stronger vessel. It doesn't say it that way. It says the women are the weaker vessel, which means, hey, that the man would be the stronger vessel. And I have in my muscular capacity as a man the capacity to harm my kids. I do. I could bring a very remarkable punishment upon my kids. And yet I am inclined towards love and mercy. And I desire them to succeed. And my kids recognize that. That even though I'm stronger than them, they want to wrestle with me. Why would you want to wrestle with daddy? Don't you know that I could crush you? I could sit on you. And you could never get up again. I've proven it many times. Hey, try and get out of this. Try and get in. They can't. Daddy, there's a dread there. I mean, shouldn't you be fearful of daddy? Yet the very one that has power to potentially crush them is the very one they say, Daddy, can we wrestle? Why? Because they know I'm inclined towards their rescue. I'm inclined towards their benefit, their health. The very one who could crush you is inclined to rescue you. Amazing thought. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We have the opportunity to recognize the nature of God expressed to us in Christ Jesus. Salvation and judgment, the fraternal twins. You see, they're grouped together, but they don't look the same. They're very different, but they're a part of the same process. So all throughout history, you see it. The Ark of Noah. Well, so it depends on which lens you put it on. Okay, if you're in the ark, that's salvation. What if you're on the outside? You're not feeling too good about it. Okay, that ark symbolizes your doom. That's mocking you. It's saying, look, you had the chance and you rejected it. As the, water, as the flood waters are rising, you're looking at that ark, and what does it symbolize? Destruction, judgment. But if you're in it, oh boy, this is nice. It's your salvation. You see, it's two things simultaneously. That which saves those of faith judges those of unbelief. The Passover night, you've got an angel that's passing over. It's, it's called the, the angel of sparing, the Passover. There was a sparing that took place. This same angel has come to kill all firstborn in Egypt. And guess what? There's Israelites in Egypt with firstborns. And yet this angel passes over some. Who are those? They're the ones with blood on their doorpost. And so as a result, this same night of judgment was actually, get this, the deliverance and the salvation for those that had blood on their doorpost. Isn't that interesting? This night of terror. I mean, that wouldn't be a fun thing to go through. But those who took hold of the Passover lamb and applied the blood of that lamb to their house were spared, and it became their salvation. That was the final straw. Pharaoh breaks they are released. The very thing that was the death and the judgment of Egypt is the salvation of God's people. The waters of the Red Sea, not too long after that, three days later, you have this sea. I mean, it depends on how you look at it because if you're with Miriam with her tambourine, you're feeling pretty good about the sea. This is how Jewish people dance, by the way. Uh, That's at least my guess of it. So, The horse and rider are thrown into the sea to the 
Israelites, it was their salvation. That water saved them. To the Egyptians, not so much. It was their judgment. You see that? So the same elements, these are fraternal twins. The cross, by the way, it's a symbol of execution, and we look at it with delight. That's our salvation. What a strange thing. I look at that cross as salvation. I have a hunch the devil doesn't look at it the same way. You see, that was his judgment. His head was crushed. Sin was defeated. You see, the very same thing that is our salvation is, on the other side, a judgment. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Trembling before his holiness. It never hurts to recognize what the word of God says about our righteous judge. God is jealous and the Lord revenges. The Lord, when it's all caps like that, that's the ineffable, unspeakable name of God, which we oftentimes know as Jehovah, Yahweh. The one who is the I am revenges. The Lord revenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Aren't you glad there's more to the Bible than just that passage? However, that passage is still true, which is where some of us have to wrestle. It's like, I don't want my God to be like that. Well, you don't choose how God is. You don't make a golden calf out of you know, your own imaginations of what the way you want God to be. He is a God who is wrathful towards sin, and he will, in fact, judge the wicked. Fact. I don't define him. You don't define him. He's telling us who he is. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The judgment seat. I had this one guy uh, that came up to me one day and he said, you know, all these people say that, you know, Christians are going to stand before the, the judgment uh, seat and, you know, that's just totally unbiblical. I mean, we're not, we're, we're Christians. We, we're not going to stand there. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's like, well, I don't know. Let's just look at scripture on this one. Can I know what he's saying? He's like, well, we're not going to be judged. Well, that's like Noah saying, hey, I won't be in the rain. Well, he is in the rain, but he's secured in the rain. You see that? There's a difference. It's like, I don't have to get into the Red Sea. I have nothing to do with it. No, you have to pass through that Red Sea. That Red Sea that will save you is going to judge your enemies. It doesn't mean you're not there. It just means the way you appropriate it is very different. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in our consciences. So I'm going to start to divide this into twos. It's called the, the two books. And the students this week had a message called the two trees. And so they're getting used to the fact that I'm always bringing up twos. There's twos everywhere, all over scripture. And so this side is always the side, you know, that's the, the bad stuff usually. And this is the good stuff over here. So we have flesh over here and then we have spirit over here. And all throughout the Bible, there's always twos, you know. And I always say Cain and Abel. And then you have Ishmael 
Isaac. And it's always the second that God chooses. It's interesting. So in the Bible, we see a division the same way. And so when I say two books, I want you to see something start to form in your mind. The Bible discusses books. It's odd, but it talks about books. And there is a first book, if you want to say it that way, and a second book. Now, in the case of the books, even God's first book is righteous. It's good, but it's not sufficient to save. Whereas the second book, as I will explain, not just pages with uh, ink on it, but the second book, which is a living book, by the way, just to give you a hint, can save. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgments. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Hid in the day of the Lord's anger. I thought we're all going to have to stand before the judgment seat. It may be that you may be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. I'd like to know more about that. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. So as you study judgments, it's an amazing thought, but in the New Testament, we get this idea that there is the potential to be bold in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. You see, it's sort of like as Adam was, so are we in this world. He's under a just condemnation. And because we're his descendants, as Adam was, so are we in this world. But what you see in the new covenant is a switch because you must be born again. Unless you enter the second man, you are still under the just sentence of death that the first man deserves. That's why we must be born again. We must put off the old man and put on Christ. So, as Adam was in this world, so are we. And we will receive his just condemnation. We are all born in that sin. And so therefore, the weight of that condemnation is upon us. However, as Romans 8.1 articulates, and correctly, now, moving forward in the new covenant, there is now no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. You see, there's a new creature that is being formed. We've transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. So, as Adam was, so are we. As Christ is, so are we. Does Christ fear the judgment day? Well, we're in him. And so as you see this story unfold in the Old Testament, you'll recognize that actually means something to us. As Christ is in this world, so are we. We can have boldness in the day of judgment. The great white throne. It's okay to tremble a little, guys. This is big stuff. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. You know, there's this river, this river of life that comes out from under the throne. It's interesting that it's called a fiery stream here. Remember what came out of Jesus? It was blood and water. So it was like red water. Isn't that interesting? And so a living river to the Jew, life was found in the blood. So it's like blood water. And so what you see it described as here is a fiery stream. Isn't that an interesting description of it? It's like this living river. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. Whoa. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Well, what's the difference? How do we know who's going to go into everlasting contempt and who's going to go into everlasting life? How, how do you determine this? Revelation 20. Well, we see the same throne. 
So what Daniel saw is the same thing the apostle John sees. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. That is one of the coolest lines in the Bible right there. I'm going to read it again just because I think it's great. From whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand stand before God and the books were open. We got books again, guys. There's those books. And another book was open. What an interesting statement. You have books, and we're going to put them over here. And then you have another book was opened. Isn't that just an odd statement? It's like, why does it just say all the books were open? Why does it have to delineate between the books and then the other book was opened? Isn't that fascinating? Good stuff. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, first books, according to their works. So we have some books. Seems to be the same thing Daniel was seeing. There's some books. And the dead are going to be judged out of what are in these books. And yet, John sees that another book was opened. I'm putting it over here on purpose. I'm trying to help you. Okay? It's called the book of life. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So the first books are bringing judgment. But there's this second book. It's called the book of life. And if your name is not written in the book of life, well, then whatever that's bringing judgment on you is going to be correct, and you're going to face the just sentence for it. The open books, we're going to call them the writings of God. It's sort of a hard thing because it's not like any one of us is going to know for certain exactly what these books are. It's somewhat shadowed in mystery, but there's so much in the Bible that helps us understand this. So let's put the pieces together that we do have. I'm going to refer to the books that are opened as simply the law and the prophets. Now, if you know the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament, you recognize that there are also historical accounts and there are wisdom writings in it. So it's not the fullest enunciation. However, it is safe to say and throughout history it's often been called the law and the prophets. It's that which points to the coming Messiah. But the law, it can't save you. You see, it can only reveal to you your need of a savior. It's still God's word, don't get me wrong, but it says that it's a schoolmaster which leads us to Christ. You see, it has a job description. It's like a road sign that says, You need a savior. It is saying, You must live this way. It, and, and it, it delineates perfection, the behavior of God. And it says, How you doing? And it measures you against it and finds you full of fault. You see, as Adam was, so were you. And Adam is deserving of a just condemnation. The wages of his sin are death. And you are born into that. You're born into that and you share in it. And all of us have sinned. And all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. So therefore, when we are judged according to these books, every single one of us is found guilty. And God is just. Every single one of us, according to the books, the books of the law, what the prophets spoke, we are found guilty lacking in the day of judgment. So we're going to call it the book of letter. And he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai 
two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. God's the one that came up with the law, guys. He's the one that revealed it. So even though it's pretty heavy, it's still good. It's still right. And even though it says that we are wrong, it's still right. It's righteous. It is true. And God, who is a just God, rightfully must judge us out of that law. However, there is another book opened. So this is the book of life. I'm going to call it the new, the life of Jesus, the new covenant in his blood. I'm going to do something that might sound strange at first, but I'm going to liken this second book. I'm going to say it's not just pages like parchment or animal skins with ink on it. Okay, because our concept of a book being perfect bound and, you know, having 210 pages in it, that's not the type of book that would have been described here. It was where the revelation of the Word of God in text was captured. It was a book. And so they could have been a roll and you, you know, unrolled it like this. There could have been parchments and, uh, or animal skins stacked. I mean, it could be all sorts of options for it. But long and short, the book that we are referring to here is living. And I'm going to say it's a person, just to make you feel really odd. It's a person. Yeah, it's a person. It's the book of life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Jews understand the text of Scripture, the revelation of God to his prophets, to those men that were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write the sacred text of Scripture. They understand it as the Word of God. It was delivered to them by God via the Holy Spirit. Men were carried along and what they wrote were living words. The truth in it was living. But it pointed to something that was to come. It pointed to one that we know as the Messiah or the Christos, the Christ in the Greek, Jesus. It is all fulfilled in him. And so John the Apostle makes it very clear. He says, you do realize that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in those books. Every one of us, everyone born of Adam has failed the test of the law. But there is one who has actually satisfied the law, the just command, the righteous standard. He did it. He was the word of God in flesh. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Well, who created the heavens and the earth? God, it says in Genesis 1. So who are we talking about here, guys? It says, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. See, this word was God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So I'm going to liken this book to the man Jesus. The greater testament, the greater book. You see, it's not written in stone, tablets of stone from Mount Sinai. It's actually written in a human life. Jesus is the enunciation of truth living amongst us. And yet to call him a book sounds strange, but he's the word of God. He's the word of God in living color, action. He has breath. He has will. He has the ability to speak. It's amazing. So it's not written in stone, but in a human body. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. So in the New Testament, we understand that that's the body of Christ. 
We were to be a living epistle. Where do we get that from? From the body of Christ. That's who Jesus was. Jesus is a living letter. He's a living book. And it's not written uh, in the same way. It's not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. In a human life. A book? A human life? A book? I know, that sounds strange, doesn't it? So in the Old Testament, we have some very bad things. That's, you know, great things to start out. I mean, the first seven days are wonderful. And then we just start to go downhill. After sort of the dust settles, and it seems that Moses is settling in to write uh, the account of what takes place as a result of all that, this is what it says. This is the book of the generations of Adam. This is the book of the generation of dead men. Dead men walking. This is their testimony. That's the first book. Isn't that an interesting statement? This is the, gener- this is the book of the generation of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him. Okay, now, so this is the book of dead men. This is the book we can relate to. This is, the, this is our judge right here. It's the word of God. It will condemn us, guys. The word of God will condemn us in the end. If you remain here, stationary, and you do not repent and escape and believe in Jesus Christ and find your refuge in him, you're under the just sentence that even this book says you will have. The very beginning of the new covenant, the book of life, if you want to say it this way. Listen to the difference. This is the the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, We got a second man here. We got a second book. And it's a completely different end result. This one leads to condemnation. It can't save you. It can only say you need someone to save you. But the second book offers you salvation. Judgment. Salvation. Which book do you want to hang out in? And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. I skipped what it was written because my point is this. Sorry. He's read some great stuff. Okay. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. What's What's he saying? He's saying, guys, I'm he. I'm the one that's talking about. All of that points to me. What do you read? Isaiah 61? Yep, that's the Messiah scripture. It's very clear. This is what the anointed one will do when he comes. The anointed one, the Christos. This is what he will do. Hey, guys, today, this is fulfilled. I'm the guy. That's Jesus talking. He's saying, I'm the living book. The Lamb's Book of Life. So this living book in the New Testament actually has multiple names. It's really interesting. So one of them is the Lamb's Book of Life. The Word of God, the living book, the living epistle. So look at just some of the options. Psalm 69 calls it the Book of the Living. Isn't that interesting? I just described this as the Book of the Dead. (laughs) That's what it is. It's the generations of Adam. They're dead men. They cannot produce righteousness. And any of their righteousnesses is filthy rags in heaven. It does not mean that the text in this book is faulty. It is pure. It is right. But all it can do is judge. It can bring condemnation. It's the only thing it can do is say, you need a rescuer. And he is coming. 
He'll be born of a woman, the seed of a woman who will crush the head of your ancient adversary, the serpent. He'll be born in Bethlehem of a virgin. His goings forth are from everlasting. He will be God with us. Talks about it. The Old Testament, this book that brings condemnation says there is a second book. He will come to this earth to save. He will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. The book of the living. I, I like that book. God, can I read that book? The book is what it's called in Daniel 12. The book. The book of life in Revelation 3. The book, listen to this one. This could have been a great title for this message. The book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You remember, have you ever read one of those old books that has like a title that's a paragraph long? It's like sort of like that one. The book of life from the foundation of the world. Isn't that interesting? That's what it's called. The book of life from the foundation of the world. The Lamb's book of life. The book of life. You're starting to catch on here. This is like a character in the Bible. There's a book. It's told about in the Old Testament. It's fulfilled in the New Testament. What is this book? Now, some of you know, you've heard it said that your name needs to be written. Now, all growing up, I picture this big, dusty, thick book on some you know, bedside table for God. And it was called the Book of Life, and you know, God would page through it, and there would be names in there, you know, that, uh, and then some would be, you know, disappear and then show up. And you know, all these things, like, how does this work, this Book of Life? Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you. This is some, a great time for rejoicing. The, the disciples have gone out, and they've received power. Uh, this is before Pentecost, but they were given the Holy Spirit to go out, and they healed people. They saw devils cast out. And they come back, and I mean, they're excited. I mean, this is like cool stuff. This is what Jesus says. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Well, doesn't it? I mean, well, great, Jesus, that's wonderful. What are you talking about? I mean, what, what does that mean? You see, even the word heaven is very significant. I talked about the all caps, L-O-R-D, Lord. The Jews... To heed the Ten Commandments were very guarded with how they spoke the ineffable name. The name that God gave himself to Moses at the burning bush. The I am that I am. It's the four letters is what it's oftentimes called. Not spoken publicly by any Jew for centuries and generations, so they don't even know how it's pronounced. But it would be like, they don't know though. They don't know what it sounds like, which is where we get Yahweh. Okay, Yahweh. And it was ineffable. It was beyond what they felt they could speak. And so what they created was called euphemisms. A euphemism is a replacement term. Like, for instance, to show respect to me, my kids call me daddy. Now, if one of my kids came up and said, Hi, Eric, I uh, just wanted to see if breakfast is ready. i say, well, I'm daddy to you. You see, it's not that I'm not Eric. I really am Eric. However, to them, I'm daddy. And to the Jews, he was Jehovah. Lest they say his proper name. Lest they show disregard and disrespect, which was considered blasphemy. They did euphemy. They created a replacement for it to show regard and respect. Some felt so strongly to distance themselves, even from the words Jehovah and Lord, that they called it heaven where he lived. Lest they say Jehovah's dwelling place. So heaven is a euphemism for the dwelling place, the very presence of Jehovah, the Almighty. So look what Jesus is saying. Rejoice because your names are written 
in the very presence of God. Your names are written in heaven. And has raised us up together. So Paul then builds on this very concept. And made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That should tie a couple things together for you. You see, the book is living. The book is a man. The book is Jesus. And unless your names are written in Jesus Christ, you are condemned under a just condemnation from the books of the law. They will sentence you. They are right. They are accurate. They are perfect. But Jesus has fulfilled them. And so in the day of judgment, you can be as he is instead of as Adam is. If you would repent and put off the first man, put off the old man, and believe in Jesus, you are hid in the day of judgment, in the judge himself. I can't think of a more safe place. It's like, Jesus, I'm with you, right? We're together in this. Introducing Jehu, the bringer of righteous judgment. Now, I'm going to try and go through this quick. It's a massive story in Scripture. And so I'm going to trim it down to what I would say is the most necessary ingredients for you to catch the picture of how the Old Testament is going to portray righteous judgment. It's pretty amazing. So 20 years prior to Jehu showing up on the scene, Jehu was a king of Israel. Now, if any of you have ever studied the king's There's kings of Israel, which were the northern ten tribes. And then you had the southern tribes, which were Judah and Benjamin. It's called Judah, the kings of Judah. And amongst the kings of Judah, we have a handful out of all the kings that did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. So praise God that we at least had a few kings out of all of Judah that did right uh, what was in uh, God's uh, mind and, and eyes. However, to the north, the kings of the north, there wasn't one good king. And that's a pretty sad (laughs) testimony through the ages. And yet, Jehu is one of those odd ones for us to know how to grapple with because he starts out right. And then he sort of goes downhill. But what we're going to see in this story, actually God is going to go out of his way to say, that was right. And here's what's awkward in it. We would rather have it be wrong. Because it's judgment and it's extreme. It's a remarkable punishment on the nation of Israel. Ah! You know what Jehu even means? It's, it's interesting. It's like saying the same thing twice. The I am is. Jehovah is Jehovah. That's sort of what it is. It's like, what? That, that's what it is. Jehovah is Jehovah. You want to know who Jehovah is? He's Jehovah. You know the I am? You know who he is? He's the I am. The I am is. The I am is. There you go. That's a good way of saying it. 20 years prior to the judgment carried out by Jehu, God speaks to Elijah the prophet to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. It's possible, get this, that Jehu wasn't even born yet at this time. When Jehu is anointed, it's not even Elijah that anoints him. He's not even around. It's actually Elisha that takes this commission from. That mantle passes to Elisha, and it's Elisha that actually anoints him. And God declares that Jehu will bring his judgment. So way back in 1 Kings 19. But actually, we're going to go all the way to 2 Kings chapter 9 before we even see. And there's a lot happening here. This is about 20 years of time. And this is the reign of Ahab. Remember Ahab, Jezebel, 
bad characters, okay? So they, you see a lot of, God seems to close in with a closed-in lens, like a, he zooms in on the, the, the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. Isn't that interesting? It's like, why are we seeing this? He's teaching us something in through the process. He's teaching us mercy, that he is long-suffering. See, most of us only see the judgment that comes, and we fail to see that as rotten as they are, God keeps giving them opportunity. Why do you think he removed rain from the land for three and a half years? Yeah, it's judgment, but it's also mercy because he could wipe them out. Instead, he gives them the opportunity to repent. And what does Ahab do? He comes to Elijah and says, look, I need you to pray for the nation. Comes to the prophet of Jehovah. And so multiple times throughout these 20 years, Ahab is warned. And Ahab sort of somewhat repents to get things straight in his country again. And then he goes right back downhill. And in the end, God makes it very clear, Ahab, you're going to die. And all your children are going to be judged. You have turned against God. You have mocked him openly. You've done the worst in this land. And it's time for judgment. So what's also amazing is Ahab dies before Jehu is anointed. And to, to many of us, it's like, what? Why didn't that guy get thrown into the midst of it? He should have been trampled under the chariot wheels. He dies. I can't explain that. However, what you see in and through the process, just like you see in the days of, of uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt, Remember when Moses comes, you're like, why doesn't, he, why doesn't God just wipe out Pharaoh? Just move him out of the way. Get his people out. He's showing mercy. He's giving space for repentance. Aren't you glad that our God is merciful? Aren't you glad that he gives us space for repentance even though we're undeserving? You could look at Pharaoh all day long and cluck your tongue and say, God, judge him. Be watchful. Because in many ways, you've done the same. God says, release your body. Let me have your life. Let my people go, which is you. And you're like, No! My life, my nation, my country, I will not let you have it, God. So be watchful. God gives space for repentance. Praise him for that. 20 years. What's happening in these 20 years? There's a message that is coming to the nation of Israel. What is it? Repent. You know, the nation of Israel deserved judgment as far as most of us are concerned long before this. But God is still merciful. God is long-suffering. God puts up with a lot more than we realize in Scripture. And yet he also judges. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From 1 Kings chapter 16 to 2 Kings chapter 9. The anatomy of destruction in any of our lives. Okay, just a quick overview of it. First, there's an indifference. When you start to become indifferent towards conviction and towards sin, and you say it's not that big of a deal. You take sin lightly, it's the first step towards judgment. You cannot take sin lightly. And that's why messages on judgment are important to recalibrate us and sharpen us afresh to the seriousness of the shed blood of Jesus. He didn't die for nothing. He didn't die to just be an example of what it means to suffer. He died to rescue us from something. What is that something? So when we start to be indifferent, that leads to then a self-justification. Hey, I'm all right. Why are you all right, Eric? Well, because this, this. Oh, God, you know, I, but I do these good things too. And You have these justifications. You cloak yourself. What, what are you hiding in the day of judgment? In your self-justification. I'm fine for these reasons. God wouldn't judge me. God knows that, you know, I mean well. God knows that I helped an old lady across the street last week. Yeah, sure, I did this. But hey, but I do all these good things too. We justify what we do. I didn't hear that conviction. I don't know about that. I'm fine. Are you fine? You see, when you start to take sin lightly and you begin to self-justify, 
Well, what's next? Hardness of heart. You see, when the Holy Spirit is convicting you, that's a gift. Don't take it lightly. Many of us don't like the pain and the heat of conviction, so we want to put it off. We want to justify ourselves. However, it's a gift of love. God has given you an opportunity, a space for repentance. And because he loves you, he's convicting you. He's not convicting you because he doesn't like you. He's convicting you because he loves you and desires you to repent. And with hardness of hearts comes judgment. Once the clay hardens, guys, we're in a bad strait. And as a result comes judgment next. The time for Jehu has come. We are very close to the time of Jehu. The I am is. We are very close to the time of judgment in our country. I know many of you can feel that. And I'm sure there's worse that can happen. Sure. But we are so negligent with the truth of Jesus Christ that we've been entrusted as a culture. Don't you just feel the gravity of what we have spurned? Just like the nation of Israel. It's like, hey guys, you're held to a higher level of responsibility. You have the words of truth. Your heritage is one of Jehovah caring for you, and yet you've spurned him, and you've gone after false idols. You mock him, and you kill his prophets. Ah! The severity of that is extreme, and that's the country we live in. We have turned against those that are godly. We have turned against our heritage, which was to protect the innocent, which was to protect the weak, which was to stand for truth and righteousness. Instead, we've turned against that. The time for Jehu has come. So Jehu is anointed. Uh, the Joram, the king of Israel, uh, is he's injured in battle, and so he's back in Jezreel. He's recovering, and so the king is not at, at, at the battle, and Jehu is like the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. So a prophet, which Jews, you know what they actually think the prophet was? They think he was Jonah, a young Jonah, came and anointed Jehu king. It was like a coup on the kingdom. And God said, now is the time. They fulfilled the prophecy and the commission to Elijah through Elisha. Elisha sends Jonah, maybe, but it's sort of interesting to say it, to anoint, because the guy doesn't have any name. He just anoints and leaves in the story. And all his people say, Jehu is king! Now Jehu suddenly has all the power of the military behind him. So where does he go? He takes all of that strength of Jehovah's army and turns it straight towards Jezreel, where both King Joram and King, what is it, Ahaziah, are both there. They're hanging out. The king of Judah and the king of Israel are just sort of hanging out there. And guess what? They have no idea what's coming. Jehu rides his chariot furiously. That's the description of it. It's Jehu. He rides furiously. Yeah. Jehu rides in his chariot to Jezreel to bring judgment on Joram, the king of Israel, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah. He cries out to all who will listen. So Ahaziah and Joram are like, who's that? Who's that coming? They see a cloud of dust on the horizon. And so they send out one of their watchmen. Go, go check and see if he means peace. So the horseman rides up and says, do you mean peace? What have I to do with peace, says Jehu? Get behind me. He gives him an opportunity. Sort of like, repent, get behind me. You want to stand with them? You'll come under my chariot wheels. But if you get behind me, you will be spared. Next guy comes out. So they're like, what happened to our, uh, our, our messenger? Well, I don't see him anymore. He never returned. Send out another one. So, hey, is it peace, Jehu? What am I to do with peace? Get behind me. That guy gets behind him too. I mean, these guys are smart. 
I would say it's logical to get behind Jesus. He's coming in the clouds. He's coming in the fury of judgment. And he's given us space to repent. We even have the notification before he comes. The clouds are going to start stirring on the horizon. The furious chariot is on its way. Repent. Get in behind him. Join his side. He cries out to all who will listen, turn around and follow me. Those who side with Jehu. Isn't that amazing? Turn around and follow me. That's the actual words he used. Repent and believe. That's the New Testament. Those who side with Jehu are spared. Those who oppose Jehu are destroyed. Believe me, it's not a pretty sight. Jehu the decision man. I was on the way back from Indonesia quite a few years ago with Ben Zorn. Some of you guys remember Ben. And uh, we were talking about upcoming messages that we were preparing. And because, you know, as a pastor, you're always preparing a message. So what are you working on? What are you studying? And so I shared something about, I think it was the 39th parable that I was talking about. And he was like, and I was like, so what do you have? And he goes, I'm scared to tell you because you're going to stick it in a message. And then you'll steal it from me. I'm not going to do that. And he goes, ah, you would. I can see it. You just give me credit. It's like, and Ben inspired me to do this. I know you'd give me the credit, but you'd take it. It's like, okay, I won't take it. And then he gives me this quote I'm about to read you. And I'm like, oh, I want to preach on that. So he was the one that preached on it. It was a great message called The Decision Man. And what's funny is, ironically, it doesn't say The Decision Man in it. It does, but not totally. Now listen to this quote. Father, this is Jim Elliott talking. Make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. Decision man. So that's the way I always understood it. Decision man. You know, that's the way Ben presented it. So that's in my mind. So that's the way you're getting it too. Make me a decision man. When people encounter my life, they have to choose which way they're going. Turn around. Follow Christ. You see, you, can't, you either stay in Jezreel with Joram and Ahaziah. I mean, that's, that's some strength. Those are kings. They're authorities. Yeah, you can stand with them, but they're going to be judged. The kings of the earth will take their stand. We're forewarned about this in Psalm 2. Joram and Ahaziah will take their stand against the anointed one. But the one on that chariot will laugh and hold them in derision. Turn around. Get behind me. They don't. Joram and Ahaziah come out to fight. And they refuse to give up their control of their life, the control of their kingdom. They refuse to relent to Jehovah is. And they are destroyed. Next, Jehu's chariot arrives at Jezebel's palace. Oh, boo. Jezebel is just bad news. She, even to this day, when someone says to a girl that she's a Jezebel, by the way, if anyone ever says that to you, that's not a compliment. Okay, that's about as big a put down as you could get. Manipulative, controlling, wicked. Yeah, it's bad stuff. So Jezebel, Ahab's wife, is in her palace and she hears that Jehu is coming. So what is the first thing she does? She puts on her makeup. She gets all gaudy and dressed up and she comes to the window, all prim and proper, and she looks down on Jehu. Not a good idea. Don't put on your facade of righteousness, and then sneer down at the judge. Not a good idea, and you're going to find out really quick that it was a bad idea for Jezebel to do it too. She haughtily peers down at him from her palace window. Jehu shouts to all those that surround Jezebel. She had some eunuchs around him. It's funny because even in the story it says two or three. It doesn't even give an exact number of how many uh, eunuchs respond. It's just two or three, which is an odd statement. 
And so he yells out, and he says, who is on my side? Who? He totally ignores Jezebel. He says, who is on my side? And these eunuchs, two or three of them, stick their head out and go, we're with you. <laughs> Standing right next to her. They've been in her service. They were in the service of the wicked one. And yet when they hear the commission, they see the chariot coming. They say, ah, hey, we're with you. And so two or three eunuchs looked out at him. Then he said, throw her down. That was their first commission. All right? If you're with me, throw her down. That was their commission. They've been her servant. And now they throw her down. What you're seeing in that is one of the most profound pictures of putting off the old man. Throw it down. Don't give it any more legal authority over your life. You want to follow me? You put off that old man and you join me in my chariot. You join my position. You join me. Throw her down. So they threw her down, and Jehu's chariot trampled her underfoot. If you've ever read the story in the Bible, the biblical account is deeply disturbing. <laughs> the chariot wheels that crush her, her blood splatters. I mean, it's actually, it's like, whoa, God. Uh, wow, okay, I think you're making a point here, because I'm feeling a little queasy. Next, Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders, and to those who raised Ahab's 70 sons, warning them of the pending judgment. Ahab had 70 sons. And so uh, Jehu sends out a letter, and he says, set a king on the throne. I'm ready to take you down. You do your best. You fight with all the strength you have, but I'm coming to judge you. And you know what these elders say? Uh, You just defeated two kings. We have no interest in fighting you. What can we do to join your side? And so Jehu says, send me the heads of those 70 sons in a basket. Mm-hmm. You just got another picture. I know these are gruesome. I, I didn't come up with them, but guys. However, what does it show? All that you've been subservient to, all that has ruled over you, all that you've shown respect to up to this point, you want to serve Jesus Christ, you have to die to those things. You're no longer under the control of Ahab's regime. So these elders recognize the power and authority of Jehu, and so they turn on Ahab's 70 sons, kill them, stick their 70 heads in baskets, and send them to Jehu. And then it says in 2 Kings 10, 11, So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, and all his great men and his close acquaintances and his priests, until he left him none remaining. Next, Jehu rode his chariot to Samaria. This just keeps going, doesn't it, guys? On the way, Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom. Jerusalem, the capital city of the southern kingdom, Judah. But so Samaria is the capital. On the way, Jehu ran into the brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah, who don't obviously know what's going on. And Jehu asked them a question. Who are you? Are you with Ahaziah? With Joram? Are you with Jezebel? Are you with Adam? Or are you with me? They answered, we are the brothers of Ahaziah. We are the descendants of Adam. We proudly claim to be the descendancy of the dead man. We have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. Those are our friends. This is the side we have chosen. They're bragging about it. And I don't know who if they know who they're messing with. And so Jehu said to his officers, take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the well of Bethaked, 42 men, and he left none of them. Jehu, who's with him? I know, it's deeply disturbing. Hey, I, I'm not the one putting these stories together. I'm just relaying them to you. And this is a picture. 
We are being prepared to understand a remarkable punishment. And it's deserving, guys. Yes, there was a season of sparing. There was a season of mercy to give a grace for repentance. But there is a time when that door to the ark closes and the rains begin. Jehu, who's with him? Are you with Ahab in his house or are you with Jehu in his house? This is the question every single one of us needs to answer. This is where popularity in this world is found. This is where comforts in this world are found. Which side are you on? Are you willing to forsake Ahab and his cronies to join Jesus? Are you behind Ahab, hiding in the false security of a wicked king? Or are you behind Jehu, the anointed of Jehovah and the true power of salvation? Jehu, this is an amazing meditation here. His judgment is furious, but right. Because some of you, even when you're reading this, are like, I, I think he took it to an extreme. I don't think God would have wanted him to do that. So just in case you come to that conclusion, God sticks this line in the Bible. Wow. Because I know many of us struggle with the fact that the wicked will go to hell. I mean, it's, it's hard to swallow that a loving God would send people to hell. How many times have you heard that? If he's really loving, then... No, he's loving. That's why he gave his son to die on that cross. You see, an empty hell is not the signal of God's love. If he wasn't a judge, a good judge, if he didn't have his wrath, he's not truly a loving God. You see, if I just allowed wickedness to come into my family and I loved wickedness and I was so nice to wickedness that I allowed it to devour my family, am I a loving father? Am I a loving husband? No, you see, love has two sides to it. It involves the protection and care for the ones that are entrusted to him. And it must resist those that oppose that. Jehu, his judgment is furious, but right. And the Lord said to Jehu, brace yourselves for this, guys, because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight. Everything I just read was considered right in God's sight. And have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart. Your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. The proclamation. The old man is judged. His end is sure. Join the revolution of light. This is the time. This is the season. You've been given a message. Many of you have joined the side of Jehu. But you need to recognize that you're a carrier of that message. And that in this season, people need to know that that judgment is coming. Not so that we can focus and meditate on judgment so that we can understand and appropriate the true value of his salvation. Climbing in Jehu's chariot. My mental picture for this has really profoundly impacted my life. The chariot in this story, I mean, Jezebel was trampled under the chariot. This chariot is like the means of judgment. And yet, God sort of opens the door to the chariot, if you want to see it this way. And the one he rides, his judging chariot. And he says, climb on inside. You see, you do not fear the chariot wheels when you're in the chariot. Just a matter of fact. It's a matter of placement. Wherever you are, if you're in the chariot, you're not concerned about being trampled by it. But you're still in the same judgment. You see, you are in the judgment, but you're hid in the judgment. Because you're with the judge. Climbing in Jehu's chariot. So in 2 Kings 10... We have an amazing story. Now when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. Jonadab is literally going out of his way to meet 
Jehu. Who wants to meet Jehu? Any more than who wants to wrestle with daddy? You see, he recognizes that he's bringing righteous judgment. And so he wants to appeal. He wants to come to Jehu to meet him. This is quite a daring thing to do. So coming to meet him, and he greeted him and said to him, and this is Jehu greeting him, is your heart right as my heart is toward your heart? Listen to that question. Is your heart right as my heart is toward your heart? So Jehu is inclined to give him mercy. Isn't that an interesting statement? He's in his chariot, but he's inclined. His heart is towards Jehonadab to save him. Isn't that an interesting and amazing statement? But Jehonadab, is your heart towards me the same? Do you want to be saved? And Jehonadab answered, it is. Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand and he took him up to him into the chariot. Okay, did you just see the gospel before your eyes? I mean, is that one of the most beautiful things in the time of judgment? The very one who will bring judgment on this earth is the very one who extends his hand to you and says, is your heart towards me as mine heart is towards you? I love you so much that I laid down my life. Is your heart disposition towards me to allow me to save you? Do you want me as your savior? Do you crave a savior? Because if you don't get in this chariot, you will be trampled. You choose now because I'm on a mission. Then he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. It's just the message of God to you. Come with me, he says, and see my zeal for the Lord. So they had him ride in his chariot, and when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to Elijah. Should Jehonadab fear when they arrive in Samaria? No, he's in the chariot. Should you fear the judgment day? Not if you're in the chariot. Is your name written in the book of life? What's your position? If you are in Christ, should you fear the judgment? For you are in the chariot. You are in the living one. The one who is going to judge the living and the dead. The one who has been entrusted by the Father. The role of condemning those that are wicked. Should you fear it? Not if you've put off the old and clothed yourself in the new. Every single one of us, no matter where we're at today, If you're feeling distant from Christ, well, then freshly acknowledge your trust. Take his hand. His hand is like this. Is your heart towards me? Is my heart is towards you? You see, it's up till dying breath. It's up till closing of door. At every juncture, his hand remains. But at a certain point, the chariot door closes. This is our window to live right with God. Are we ready for the day of judgment? Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. So listen to, I have an expanded version. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because we ride in the I am's chariot. That's why we have boldness in the day of judgment. That's why. You know that there is an assurance that you can have in that book. I don't question, I don't wonder if I'm in the Lamb's book of life. I know I am. How do you know, Eric? Well, because I believe the word of God. And it says that if I repent and believe, that then I'm in Christ. 
So therefore, I'm not going to question the word of God on the matter. I know that he has extended his hand to me. And I've grabbed a hold of it, even though I'm so unworthy. I, I have been with Ahab. I have sided with him in different matters, conspired with him to my benefit and to the Savior's harm. And yet his heart is right towards me. And as I repent and correct my heart towards him, his hand is there and I take it. And he lifts me up into the chariot. And that's where I ride. I ride with Christ in his working in this world. A few pertinent questions. Is your heart towards him the same as his heart towards you? Have you taken his hand and entered his almighty chariot of fire and judgment? I know, it can be a little scary. Remember the dread of daddy? How many of you have ever, ever thought of wrestling with God Almighty? I mean, if Daddy Ludi could keep you down so that you can't move, just imagine what wrestling with Jehovah God would be like. The one who created the heavens and the earth. I mean, he holds all things together. He is almighty. And yet, we are going to approach him. Daddy, Daddy, pick me up, lift me up into your lap. I want to be with you in that chariot. One of my favorite stories, I don't know why, it's always been a favorite to me, is John F. Kennedy. Uh, when they're, he's, he's in a key uh, discussion on the Bay of Pigs in the Oval Office. And uh, so, I mean, life and death. Millions of lives are hanging in the balance. And underneath his desk is little, what was it, Bobby Jr.? Is that, what was that his name? Johnny? Johnny Jr. John Jr. So it's not Johnny Jr., it's John Jr. John John. Okay, we've got some debate over on the Rosen side. <laughs> John John is down there vroom, vroom, with a truck underneath the, uh, the desk of the president. And it's like in the midst of terror in the world, I mean, all this grand stuff is going on. And where's John John? The son of the president is invited in to be there. He's not stressed about the Bay of Pigs. He's not stressed about the coming judgment. He's safe. He's a son of the king. Are you participating in the judging of the old house in order to establish his new house? You see, there's a very real need for you to participate, participate with Jehu. Uh, throw her down. Hey, uh, could you deliver that up in the baskets, guys? Why are you still subservient to that? <laughs> hey, come on. Don't you know what the cross did? It crushed the head of the enemy. Lop it off. Deliver it up to Christ. <laughs> These things have no control over you anymore. But it's Ahab's sons. I know but they're defeated. They have no more authority and power over you because the head has been cut off. The head has been crushed. Are you in his judging company in full agreement with his agenda? See, that, that's a good question because some of us pull back when it comes to this judgment thing. It's like, Jesus, I'm more of a mercy sort of guy or girl. I'm not really the one that really enjoys judgment. Did you think any of us in here enjoy judgment? I don't know one dad that enjoys disciplining his children. Fascinating statement. Judgment is not enjoyable, even for judges. It is a hard work, but it is a necessary one. If I don't bring correction to my children, I don't love them. Love and correction, love and judgment is actually, again, two sides of the same coin. Are you joining with him in agreement? Like, God, your justice is right. Your judgment is good, and I stand with you instead of being embarrassed by you in this world. 
And when people say, who are you to serve a God who judges? Are you willing to stand with him? Are you willing to stand with your God and say, he is good? He is good in his judgment. He is still righteous. Have you painted? Oh, there was a second question. Are you the object of his judgment? I don't want to be that. Have you painted your face and come to the window feigning that you are justified and clean in your wickedness? What? You're going to judge this? Have you painted your face? Are you covering up that decadence and that sin? Self-justification will get you nowhere. Repent. Believe in Jesus Christ. Join him in his chariot. Are you willing to join the revolution and toss wicked Jezebel out the window? Are you willing to serve up the 70 heads of Ahab's sons to Jehu and declare him your king? Do you agree with Jehu and his great zeal? Are you with him in this? And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Fact. There's a second book, praise God. If all we had is the law, we're insufficient. Our work in Adam will not please. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Cannot stand before God. But his righteousness... His work is pleasing to God. And just as you share in Adam's work, now you share in Christ's work. And it's pleasing. And so therefore, you will be judged according to your work. However, praise God, we are judged according to His work when we enter into Him. Because if we're judged according to our works, even after we become Christians, we still are going to fall short on the judgment day. At every juncture in your relationship with the kingdom of heaven, you rest on the fact that he is your righteousness. He is, and it's his work that will sustain you in the day of judgment. By what merit, Eric Ludi, can you enter the kingdom of heaven? No merit of my own, O king, but I'm in Christ. It's his merit that I plead. He is worthy to enter, and I'm written in him by faith. Now, after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The chariot wheels are turning. Do you see the cloud of dust in the distance? Repent and believe the gospel. This is the heritage of the saints. I know the story of Jehu is a little difficult to swallow. But it gives a foreshadow and a picture of our life and how we need to live. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com. E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E dot com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.